If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. After making his name as a medieval historian, Dan Jones has turned his hand to historical fiction. His debut novel, Essex Dogs, brings to life the 1346 Cressy campaign, a major episode of the Hundred Years' War. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Dan about the secrets of writing great battle scenes, the challenges of relying on medieval sources, and how a dinner with Game of Thrones author George R.R. R. Martin inspired Dan to pick up a pen. So this is your first foray into historical fiction. What made you decide to write a novel? Well, for a long time, I mean, people have asked me to write novels over the years because I suppose my historical writing, my non-fiction, draws a lot, actually doesn't draw a lot from novel techniques. It draws more from screenwriting techniques. But I think people have felt that my, that stylistically my non-fiction is relatively close to fiction so I'd been asked over the years to um to try my hand and I'd always refused uh because I and what I used to say was to get a history book wrong is sort of um a little bit embarrassing you know you might have have 
got some details wrong or have, have interpreted something in a way that other scholars disagree with. But to get a novel wrong is like to reveal that you don't really understand what it means to be a human being. And I think that would bring shame on my family, as well as myself. So I'd always resisted. But after a while, I just realised that that's just cowardice. And I'd written ten non-fiction books. And I just had an idea. I had an, uh, It had developed over the course of a, a few years. And it was catalyzed, I suppose, in the summer of 2019. I did a big event in London and then had dinner with George R.R. R. Martin, who writes the books on which Game of Thrones is based. And George is a really serious, like, avid reader of history. He knows, like, so much history, and he's such a, like, he's so immersed and steeped in history. But he spends all his time writing fiction, and he seems to really, really have a good time doing it. And I'd always been a fan of his work, and spending time with him talking about history, but realising there was, there were, it was possible to take serious historical ideas and communicate them via fiction, sort of gave me the confidence to have a go. And, and so I pitched this this trilogy of novels I've been thinking about for a while to uh, to some publishers and ended up signing a deal. And here we go with the first one. Amazing. That's so cool to have spoken to George R. R. Martin about it. Not every first-time novelist gets to say that. Did he have any particular tips for writing fiction based on history? He, I, he did. I mean, I wasn't asking him. At the point I was talking to him, I had no idea that this would was something that I wanted to do or like it wasn't my serious ambition to pump him for information about how to become a novelist but we talked about the differences between writing fiction and writing history or rather we we talked a little bit about that but we also talked about different styles of writing per se and I remember George said there are two basically two types of writing so there's the architect and the gardener he says the architect is very very structural plans everything out before they start it's like having a you know a set of architectural drawings and then you go build the house exactly to spec and that's how i i've talked about this on on your podcast before that's how i've always approached non-fiction writing extraordinarily in an extraordinarily structural way uh and george said the other type of writer is the gardener who just plants a seed and then waters it and sees what comes up and grows and i remember just feeling sick at the thought of of approaching writing like that but that's how he writes and as I discovered, or have discovered in the last three years, that is a much more appropriate way to write fiction for me. So I've sort of switched style, like, really quite dramatically uh, in moving from history to fiction. But I think that's probably good anyway. I think it's good to have a, a clear separation between the two genres in my mind and hopefully in the minds of my readers too. And obviously one of the biggest things with writing fiction is you get to play fast and loose with the truth. You can make people up, you can play with creative license did you do that a lot in your book did you try and deviate from the historical record where you saw fit yes because there's no point writing fiction if you're not going to take advantages of what fiction gives you and you're absolutely right Rhiannon that's that's the opportunity that fiction affords you but historical fiction is a really odd genre and it, it does funny things to writers and it does funny things to readers um, you are in a sort of grey area where people uh, on the one hand, want an exciting story that obeys the, the structures and the tropes of fiction and um, makes the most of the opportunities that fiction presents in terms of, of creative license. Uh, 
But on the other hand, it's historical fiction, so that you, there's, I think, readers approach it with a certain desire that this is informed by history in some sense. And you have to be very clear in your mind as a writer how you're going to approach that. So in Essex Dogs, which is the first uh, of the novels in this trilogy, it's about the Hundred Years' War. It's about the Cressy campaign in 1346 with the Hundred Years' War. So 1337, um, Edward III, King of England, decides he's going to be King of France as well. Uh, he has a claim dynastically to this. Uh, he decides to enforce it through politics, diplomacy and warfare. The war kind of gets going in the early 1340s, and in 1346, after a long time, a long period of planning, and a long period of mostly proxy war, Edward III d- departs from England with an army of about 15,000 men, uh, brings them across the Channel, and lands on the Normandy beaches, Utah Beach, as we now call it, by St. Vassalahogue. They disembark the army, and then march through Normandy, following the course of the Seine River, uh, looking for a crossing, so they can... Uh, they're heading towards Paris and looking for a crossing to get to the north bank of the river, as the French fall back, um, breaking bridges. There are some engagements in cities like Caen. Edward finally gets across the river, uh, and then it's a race north. He wants to meet up with a smaller army uh, under his ultimate command, which is mostly made up of Flemings, his allies. Meanwhile, the English are now being pursued by the French, uh, Philip VI army. Um, They meet near the River Somme at a battlefield, which we now call Crecy, and one of the most famous battles of the 14th century, arguably of the whole later Middle Ages, takes place um, between the English the French and their various allies, most notably the Genoese on the French side. Uh, it's it's a battle that is remembered for uh, generations afterwards for um, for the carnage that was that ensued there, for the the number of noble people, particularly on the French side, who died, for the heroic deeds of arms, um, and for the fact that it it sets up the Hundred Years' War to last a very, very, very long time. More than a hundred years. And um, I wanted to follow that historical campaign, and so I wanted the the beats of that campaign to be the known historical beats, and I wanted it to be informed by the original sources. But I also wanted to do something radically different that wasn't a history book, because otherwise why would I not just write a history book about the Cressy campaign or about the Hundred Years' War? So... What I figured out the way to do that was to write the history from the perspective of somebody or a group of people who would not be accessible to me or to any other writer as historians. So it's ordinary people. Now, for the in this specific example, for the Cressy campaign in the Hundred Years' War in 1346, yes, we have lots of, of sources, um, chronicles and otherwise, that tell us a lot about like Edward III and the Black Prince and the Earls of Warwick and Northampton and other English commanders, as well as, you know, those on the French side. What we don't have is anything approaching a kind of ordinary soldier's diary. And so what I've tried to do with the novel is is see this campaign through the eyes of 10 ordinary guys on campaign. So then you, you, you know, by definition, have to bring in all the creative powers of, of fiction writing, but you do so within a framework that's true to 
the real history. And that seems to me to be the, the sweet spot that, that is historical fiction as a genre. Well, let's keep talking about those 10 men then. Let's think about the Essex dogs themselves. And they come from quite diverse backgrounds, don't they? How much would this have reflected the soldiers who actually fought for England in the campaign? Well, the English army, sort of quote-unquote English army, was not just English. You know, we, there are records of the of the soldiers recruited, and there's English, there's Welsh... There was a a big Flemish component to Edward III's army, although that was that was separate from the the main expeditionary force that was fighting its way down, unsuccessfully as it turned out through Flanders uh, towards the Somme. So it's it's quite a varied group, and I tried to reflect that within Essex Dogs. So the ten guys who we follow are mostly English, but there's one rogue Scotsman who really is fighting on the wrong side, and there are two uh, quite mysterious Welsh brothers, um, archers, who are really fighting for themselves. Uh, so there's there's a reflection of the kind of the, the national identities within Edward's army. And I, I like to, I think one of the things that um, a, a good film director gave me this advice when I was working on a historical TV series, drama series years ago, was that if there's a rule in fiction, you break it. So the idea of having a Scotsman fighting with the English is 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 probably not what we might think would happen. But it, fiction gives you license to break rules and and create narrative tension by doing that. They're ordinary guys. They're of varying but mostly lower social status. They interact with people of a higher social status right up to the Black Prince, the uh, you know, teenage son of Edward III. One of the things that I try to do in the book is to show the nobility, the aristocracy, the royalty through not necessarily admiring eyes because the sources that we have for the 1340s bit of the Hundred Years' War, in fact, most of the Hundred Years' War, uh, the chronicle sources tend to be by people like Jean Froissart who are really basically dig the idea of chivalry who are into knightly combat and and knightly deeds of arms and see the whole thing as as kind of like a, a great jape uh, or that that perspective is a very skewed vision of what reality must have been like so so in the book each chapter starts with a quote from a chronicle or a newsletter from edward iii or whatever and then the the observations and interactions of the main characters, the ordinary guys, play counterpoint to the sources. That's another way that fiction's kind of doing some historical work under the guise of storytelling. And putting a historical hat on for a second then, when you're looking at these chronicles, which have a very clear bias, as you mentioned, how do you overcome that when you're trying to get to the root of what actually happened? Well, in history, in non-fiction, you know, you... You, you sort of have to comb the sources. You have to like heavily interrogate them and work against them and ask explicitly in your writing, why is this person saying this? What are their biases? How, to what extent can we trust them? In fiction, you're, you're freer. And so my starting point is, let's assume, um, as our, to take as our working hypothesis, that for most <laughs> people, the Froissart let's say, view of the Hundred Years' War is not representative. And in fact, everything is probably like the opposite of what Foissard is telling you. Let's take that as our working assumption and assume that in a sort of, to take a 21st century term, it's all fake news. 
Let's like, let's see what it might really have been like. And then you play games, and it's I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with the sources. So, so early on in the book, there's this famous scene, which I'm sure you know, your lots of your listeners will know from the Cressy campaign. On the 12th of July, Wednesday, 12th of July, 1346, when the English land on the beaches of Normandy, the D-Day beaches as we now know them, it's Utah Beach, uh, we call it these days, Edward III gets off onto the beach, stumbles in in the shallows uh, and falls over and bashes his nose and he, he gets a nosebleed. And he, um, he makes light of it and says, ah, you see, the land sort of really wants me, that's why I've fallen over. Well, that's very famous, but if you report it through fiction... Let's say I was writing the fiction from the perspective of the of the king and his son and the nobles around them. That's quite a boring and hackneyed scene, and there's not much you can do with it. But if you play it from the perspective of like ten grunts, as we might call them, if this were a Vietnam story, uh, they're kind of sniggering, like the guy's an idiot. Look, it's it's all going wrong right from the start, and then some of them are saying, "Hey, you know, chill out. Don't don't let anyone hear you." laughing at him and then there's another episode within the in the second chapter where somebody else falls over and gets their nose bloodied on the sand and a character can remark yeah first the king and now this idiot so there's loads that you can do within this fictional framework to to kind of subtly or not so subtly interrogate the real historical sources and that for me is like a a great sweet spot that's kind of the purpose of historical fiction not just to um, put di- put phony dialogue in the mouths of real historical actors, but to to, uh, to do some real history work, interrogating sources, but through the guise of storytelling. That that's that's uh, that's why it works for me. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And there's loads of great stuff that happens at Cressy to play with. I mean, this is probably the first time that cannon are on the battlefield, so you've suddenly got these eruptions of noise. Oh, like booms of gunpowder and smoke drifting across battlefields for the first time in, in Western Europe. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And there's one character in particular who really intrigued me, which is the Black Prince. You're 
characterization of him isn't quite what I expected. Why did you choose to show him as such an insolent brat? Is that really what we think he would have been like? So here's, well, I'll tell you why. Because the question that was always in my mind about the Black Prince and the Cressy campaign is, and here's another thing that I'm sure lots of your listeners will know if you know anything about the Cressy campaign. Edward III falls over at the beginning. And at the end, in the battle, uh, the Black Prince is sort of surrounded and he's fighting, but he's it looks like he might be about to get overwhelmed. And word is sent back to his father, Edward III, uh, hey, Edward, your son's in trouble. Help him out. And Edward III says, no, no, let him, basically let him, let him win his spurs. Let him work it out for himself. He's got to become a man. And that always intrigued me. Why does he say this? And, you know, you can read lots of the history, the, the straight history books about the Cressy campaign that will sort of puzzle over the question, is this, is this sort of chivalry in action? What's going on? Does Edward actually mean this? What? Well, a simpler answer, or certainly a simpler answer for the fiction writer, which is what I'm at, I am at the moment is, god damn, can you imagine how obnoxious a 16, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-old must have been given high command in the biggest English expeditionary force ever to leave the country to go and fight the French? I think, given our knowledge of what posh boys are like, he's got to have been absolutely intolerable. And so my solution to this historical question in fiction, is the simplest one I can imagine, which is that he's been such a brat for the last six or seven weeks from landing through to campaign. His father has absolutely had enough of him and just says, look, he's been he's been thinking he's a big man for weeks now. Oh, and now we're finally having a battle. Oh, he's in a bit of trouble, is he? We'll let him sort it out, sort it out for himself. So I proceeded backwards from that punchline, effectively, to say, how can we characterise the Black Prince in such a way that this makes sense when you get to the moment of the battle? So, that, so, and then, really, the Black Prince, and, and, and this is something more general about fiction writing, the Black Prince just become became a character of his own. And uh, George R. R. Martin had told me this, Bernard Cornwell had told me this, that you create these characters, and, and in fiction you know it's working when they're just doing things. You're writing, but really they're doing things that you're not controlling or expecting. And the Black Prince was one of the earliest characters in the writing process for me to just detach from a figment of my... or to feel like it detached from a, a, being a figment of my imagination that I was in control of, to being a sort of... Uh, like self-aware character who was just behaving in ways that I was writing down, and yeah, he's pretty he's pretty spicy in my book. But I put you know there's an author's note at the end, and I felt like I had to do this to say this is my version, this is fiction, this is fiction, this is like don't if you if you're if you want to read a history book about the Black Prince, Michael Jones wrote a great biography about the Black Prince. Richard Barber's written very well about the Black Prince. Go read those, the real Black Prince. In this book, as a teenager, like, he is what he is. Um, and it's just, it's it's a story. Mm. And one element of his journey in the book that really intrigued me is his growing dependence on powder. Is that complete fabrication or was there a little hint of that in the source? No, no, this is, this is, this is probably the one big bit of, his, of artistic license I've taken in the book. I figured early on, okay, I'm writing a war book. And in many ways, what the war book I wanted to write 
was was a sort of quite modern war book that, that would feel familiar to people who'd seen like Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, both of those set in similar territory in Normandy, uh, uh, but in the in the nineteen forties rather than the thirteen forties. But would also feel familiar to, to for like grittier American war films like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, those real hardball, dirty. Um, nightmarish uh, American war film. So that that was a kind of big stylistic thing in my brain when I was conceiving how to write a, a Hundred Years' War novel that wasn't just very sort of hey, nonny, no, traditional, kind of twee, annoying, um, cod medieval stuff that had a, like a real, I wanted a, a sort of bite to it, something that would feel like a modern novel but still set in the 14th century. Anyway, one great feature of the of the hard bitten twentieth twenty first century war story is that people tend to get whacked out on drugs, right? And I thought this this just sort of crept in, not through the Black Prince, but actually through another one of the characters, one of the Essex dogs, the youngest character, gets himself into a bit of trouble in the apothecary shop. And I did my research into into the the available narcotics in the Middle Ages, and I. I trusted that in the apothecaries that they encountered in these cities they're running through, some of this might be available. So I gave one of them a habit. And then in the course of the story, and this is a, this young character ended up running into the Black Prince, who's his sort of exact contemporary in age. And lo and behold, what do, what do teenage boys do when they've discovered um, narcotics? <laughs> in my experience as a teenager, now very, very long ago, they share it with their mates. Uh, and so that's what happens in the book, which is fiction. And I had enormous fun with it. I think it's probably the storyline that people will either get and dig or will um it'll make you just sort of toss the book in the in the bin. Uh I hope it does the former, not the latter. But you mentioned doing things you can't control, and I wanted to use that to pivot to this really interesting tension in the book between King Edward III's commands to not raise and pillage and rape, but to be a bit more restrained, uh, and the inevitable destruction and mayhem that still takes place. How true was that to what really happened in the campaign? Oh, absolutely true. There are frequent proclamations made in the king's name and by the king to his people saying, to the army saying, do not pillage and loot the French villages and towns and monasteries that we are passing. And if you, I suppose, if we think about it, there's there's good reason for this because Edward the Third, in theory, ha- has come to France to campaign to be the French king. He's saying, you know, he quarters his his shield with the fleur de lis and the English leopards and says, "I am the king of France as well as England." Direct implication: the French people are my subjects. We've not come here to to harm them. We've come here to liberate them. So don't be looting them. However, that does sit in direct contradiction with the commands or with rather with the basic English strategy in France pretty much throughout the Hundred Years' War which is the tactic of the chevauchet which means get on horses, go burn everything in sight burn the crops, cut down cut vines, cut fruit trees make sure these people starve not just this winter but for every winter for the next ten years Um, do them as much it's terrorism. It's terrorism. So it's quite difficult to reconcile 
uh, it felt to me it, it felt to me it must have been quite difficult for most of the uh, soldiers in this army to reconcile these two these two mixed messages you know hey leave <laughs> leave my subjects alone but also go burn and destroy all their their property and I mean, there's some distinction. It's, it's more often that Edward says, don't burn monasteries and, and churches. But, you know, the, the, the point stands. And in the novel, I try to, and this is towards the end of the novel, try to show how some people get caught between those two commands uh, with fateful consequences. There's a bit in the in the real records of the Crescent Campaign where Edward III hangs 20 men from his own army. In fact, they're the Black Prince's uh, men for plundering monasteries. And in the Chronicles, I think it's Chronicles or Campaign Newsletter, but I think it's Chronicles, um, this is reported like in half a line. Oh, and the king hanged 20 of his men for plundering a monastery, and then the next thing happened. And it was it's that laconic kind of dismissive, like quite callous, really, description of the death of deaths of 20 people that shocked me the more I read the original chronicles while I was working on this book and it, you know it also applies to what the English army did to French towns the the town was taken the town was plundered one sentence for one town well what does that mean in practice like two days of brutal terrorism involving murder rape arson the destruction of livelihoods the separation of family like the horror of war is is written about so casually in the sources and so it's it's in those spaces that the 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 fiction the author the novelist um finds his or her material or certainly that that was my experience and thinking then about the horror of war with the big battle the battle of Creasy, how was it to reconstruct that i was unbelievably blessed and lucky and am and will be eternally grateful to mike livingston uh, who's written and published this summer the definitive history of the Cressy campaign and the Battle of Cressy, uh, including Mike has um, effectively relocated the battlefield, reconstructed and reworked the, the, the sequence of events during the two days of the battle. And he unbelievably generously shared an advanced manuscript of his book while I was at the point of writing the battle. So I had the latest and greatest historical research on which to draw. Reconstructing it in fiction... Well, look, there's tons and tons and tons and tons was written about the Battle of Cressy. There are lots of original sources. It, finding detail from the original sources was not a problem. Finding historical interpretation from, from brilliant historians like uh, Michael Liverston was not a problem. The challenge, as the author is, how do you give form and sense to a medieval battle within the context of a novel where you're uh, you're dealing with a small number of individuals. And I think the answer is you lean in to the problem. It's a bigger problem, actually, I think, for the historian to try and describe a medieval battle because you're reliant on all these sources which have just... Uh, it's either, they're either hearsay or they're based on, like, tiny, partial uh, experiences of the battle. Um, and it's very hard, accurately, to reconstruct a medieval battle in non-fiction... I actually found it very easy to reconstruct a battle in fiction because, uh, and again, this is something I learned working in historical dramas. A director called Douglas McKinnon taught me this. He said, you know, just fix the camera on one person's shoulder and you will get a different view of whatever it is, you're, whatever story you're trying to tell. Cressy is told through one character's perspective. 
to the youngest of the Essex dogs, Romford, and you're stuck with him the whole way. And he doesn't really know what's going on. I mean, he knows what's going on in front of him. There's a massive crush and press of, of men moving back and forth and he stumbles and he's all he can see is boots and he's being kicked around and he blacks out and he wakes up and he's uh, he's up and then he's down and he can't breathe but then he can and he loses all his shit and, and then he's out of the press and he can breathe again and then he's he's you know and you you, you track him about the battlefield but it's every, there's no sense for the bigger picture there's just survival and there's just what's in front of you at any given moment and actually i feel like that's a, that's probably a in some senses a truer representation of the experience of medieval battle than um you know the map on the page of the the non-fiction history book that has little rectangles and arrows all over it showing you you know hypothetical troop movements that tells you really nothing of any any single person's true experience of that battle so that's how I dealt with with Cressy, and there's loads of great stuff that happens at Cressy to play with. I mean, this is probably the first time that cannon are on the battlefield, so you suddenly got these eruptions of noise, of like booms, of gunpowder and smoke drifting across battlefields for the first time in in Western Europe, and you've got the these traps laid by the English to trip and and hurt the French cavalry as they approach. You've got the the chaotic interaction between the French cavalry and uh, the Genoese crossbowmen on the French side. You've got the, the sort of inspired command of the Earl of Northampton, uh, constable of the English army. You've got Edward III up in a windmill watching the whole thing unfold. You know, you've got blind King John of Bohemia charging, you know, literally blind, shackled, tied to some of his men. He asked to be ridden into certain death on the battle. There's an enormous amount of, 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 of detail to play with, and it's. I found it was great to make it super claustrophobic and intimate by seeing it through the eyes of just one kid. So for my final question then, what does the future hold for the Essex Dogs? Well, book one, Essex Dogs, is about the as we've been discussing about the Cressy campaign, thirteen forty six, um, end of uh, end of August forty six. They have the Battle of Cressy, and then we kind of leave them. Well, you're very well informed. Uh, listeners will know that what happens next with in in real history is that Edward the Third, after taking a couple of days rest after Cressy, with his army, heads for Calais, and. So begins the 11-month siege of Calais, 1346 into 7, winter siege, or a siege that goes over over winter, um, at the end of which Calais becomes an English possession, and it remains an English possession until the reign of Mary Tudor in the 16th century. So the dogs are with the army, so they, they're going to Calais. So the next book, Wolf Moon, follows continuous from Essex dogs, and it's about the siege of Calais. And it's a different proposition. Um, so I'm writing that at the moment. Uh, the Battle of the, the Cressy campaign is has a sort of narrative imperative that comes from the fact that it's uh, it's a campaign. They're on the move, and they and you know they're heading towards battle, even if they don't. A siege is a different thing to write because they sit in one place for almost a year. But that's a di- that's good because it's a different. It's got a different feel, a different energy to it, and it's also uh, and and this is mostly bad but uh it's i'm also writing it at a time where we're seeing european sieges in ukraine um so 
the the reality so again you know this idea of of playing with what's the reality of the siege of calais versus what does froissart uh, tell us is the sort of heroic chivalric glorious vision of the siege of calais there's a, an enormous difference between those two things and so i'm trying to write about a medieval siege as it was to the people conducting it and um experiencing it and that is another exciting and extraordinary challenge to me as an author which i again i don't think i'd i'd be it wouldn't be possible to do it through the vehicle of non-fiction so uh fiction is the right medium for this story that was dan jones his debut novel essex dogs is on sale now you can also read a version of this interview in the october issue of bbc history magazine thanks for listening This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.